Welcome to the Idaho Reports podcast. I'm producer Ruth Brown. This week, I'm joined by Idaho Department of Health and Welfare Director Dave Jepson and Administrative Director of Idaho Courts, Sarah Omanson. We'll discuss recent recommendations made by the Idaho Behavioral Health Council. So I've been following the Idaho Behavioral Health Council, uh, as well as some of the working groups and the recent recommendations that uh, were drafted. All three branches of government work together to assemble the Behavioral Health Council, the focus on uh, adults, children, courts, mental illness. Director Jepson, can you walk me through what were um, some of your goals coming into this? Yeah, that's a great question and happy to answer that. Director Omenson and I, from the beginning, have really been focused on uh, a couple of things. One is that we really wanted uh, a system-wide look. Um, uh, There's been lots of great efforts around specific issues and opportunities, but we really wanted to step back and say, from a systems level, uh, what's working well? How can we do more of that? What's not working well? How can we address that? And what's just missing from our system? And how do we get get that into place? Uh, the second really goal we had when we came together was um, that we also collaborate more. So we, we our observation was is there's lots of good activities, but they tend to happen in silos. And certainly that's the case across the three branches of government, uh, but even more broadly than that. And one of the big hopes we've had, and I think we've been quite successful, is really fostering that collaboration and coordination across uh, multiple passionate and committed individuals that are trying to make behavior health better in the state. Uh, And finally, the big goal we have is that we have better outcomes, that we have a recovery-oriented system that uh, delivers the services that are needed to the people that need them, and and it works. It actually gives them the help they need so they can live their fullest life. So those are some of the goals we had with with the work. Director Omenson, as uh, administrator of the courts, what did you hope to see come out of uh, the recommendations? Um, You know, I think, quite frankly, Director Jepson really summed it up well. I mean, we were focused on one of the things that we see in the courts all the time is that when someone um, is having a mental health issue or a substance use disorder, um, if they can get the treatment that they need, if they can get the supports that they need, that we really have better outcomes. We don't see them come back through the court system. Um, And so we wanted to make sure that we had everything in place, a good structure, um, and quite frankly, again, that collaboration, that we're all working together to make sure that folks just have a better life. Um, And ultimately, that helps us, that that reduces recidivism. There are fewer cases in court and um, fewer people that end up incarcerated. So if we can build that basis and that structure, we're all in a better place. All of these recommendations uh, require funding sources of some kind. What do you uh, hope to see come of the recommendations? And do you think that uh, funding these programs will uh, come to volition? Well, as you probably saw in the report when you went through it, Ruth, there's we actually the first one of the first things we did is just find out who all is spending money on behavioral health. Uh, and in the report is a very it's the most comprehensive uh, view we have at this point. Uh, of where all at least uh, public money is being spent on the on the behavioral health system, and our first um, uh, first approach to funding this is to really say how do we use that funding more effectively? Uh, how do we kind of take that funding and point it towards a common strategy that we have in place uh, and move forward from there? Uh, there will be some things that probably pop up that may require new funding uh, as, as these recommendations mature and come to life. Uh, and there we'll really look to see if there's uh, additional grants opportunities that are available. 
if there is some shifting of funds for things that may be less effective to fund things that are more effective. Uh, and we really wanna cover those bases before we come back and try to add more funding into the system. So we really feel like we need to be good stewards of the many hundreds of millions of dollars we spend now uh, before we go back and ask for uh, more money to help out. Something that was addressed in the recommendations was the lack of access to providers in some parts of Idaho, as well as uh, some providers that don't accept Medicaid. Can you walk me through uh, some of the plans to remedy that or incentivize providers to come to Idaho? Yeah, um, I think that's a great question, Ruth. We, it, it actually the number one priority, we didn't really rank order them, but the very first priority of the nine is around how do we increase the workforce across the state? Uh, every single county in Idaho is considered a federally uh, designated behavioral health uh, provider shortage area. Uh, and so that actually is, is a pretty big issue for us. Um, you know, I think uh, we're, we're just forming the work group now um, and there's been efforts in the past, but I think we really wanna focus to say, how do we move that forward? Medicaid will have to be part of that uh, solution uh, in addition to trying to increase the, the number of providers and the way we uh, get providers in the state. We also think telehealth will be part of that solution so we can tap into resources that don't necessarily live in Idaho, but might be able to uh, provide those services here in Idaho as well. Uh, so more to come on that. Uh, obviously, we'd love to see more uh, providers that accept Medicaid as well as other payer sources out in the, in the marketplace. And um, that'll be a, a key item for us to figure out as we move forward. Is there a way to... Uh... So it's my understanding, at least, that Medicaid offers a lower rate, which is why some providers don't accept it. Is there a way to incentivize providers to do that? Or is that within the Department of Health and Welfare's grasp, I guess? Um, yeah, so the way uh, uh, provider rates are set is the Department of Health and Welfare uh, monitors what market rates are. Uh, for those rates that we think are need, need to be addressed, they are then put forward as a uh, budget request, as a line item in, in the Department of Health and Welfare's budget. Uh, so the legislature, which is, as, as you know, Ruth, the appropriating entity in the state, uh, can then make a decision about whether they want to fund that or not. Uh, so that actually uh, is the process we follow, and we actually uh, will follow that this coming legislative session. Uh, and one of the reasons I think this uh, effort was so important that it be three branches of government is we actually had the full support and engagement of the legislature. They had four, we had four legislators that joined the council. Uh, the council was, uh, was they had, the legislature had a joint uh, concurrent resolution uh, endorsing the council. Uh, and so I think they're looking for us to come back and say, how do we best spend this money and what's going to make the most difference uh, in the state? And that's a reasonable question. How do we make sure what we spend the money on is going to make a difference? Uh, and so I think this will help us bring back some requests to the legislature to address that. Uh, in addition, um, we are in the middle of rebidding the, our, the, the contract for the Idaho Behavioral Health contract for Medicaid. Um, that RFP will come out soon. So unfortunately, I'm in a blackout period. I can't actually talk about anything in that RFP right now. Uh, but I would just say it's going to come out soon. Uh, and uh, I would say we'll be able to talk more about that question when that comes out as to how we're going to use that contract to address this issue as well. And I know, Sarah, I don't know if you had anything from the courts you wanted to add to that. You know, um, people don't often understand that the courts actually get their own appropriations specifically to pay for treatment. <clears throat> so we are constantly working and communicating with the Department of Health and Welfare, uh, making an effort to make sure that that you know, our folks have access to treatment, um, that we understand what they're paying and, and that we are, are paying something at least similar, if not the same as that. 
um, because what we don't want to do is have different parts of government competing for the, the availability of resources. Um, and so we work with them pretty carefully and quite frankly, we're working on our own RFP um, that we can pull together um, in, in the future, in the near future, quite frankly, to, to put together our own treatment program. Um, and so, it, you know, it's, it's all of us working together, all of us pulling together and making sure that regardless of where the funding comes from, when people need that funding, it's available to them. Uh, on that note, before I came to Idaho Public Television, I did cover the courts for a good 10 years. And I can't, I can't even remember how many times a defendant came in that either had a serious mental illness, a serious addiction, or both. And that's a travesty. Can you walk me through some of the recommendations that can help these folks who do, they do indeed break the law, which can't be ignored, but sometimes I think the greater question is why did they break the law? Do they have, do they have a serious mental illness? Were they trying to feed their raging addiction? What are some of the recommendations that could address some of these things perhaps before an individual commits a crime? That is a great question. And quite frankly, it's one of the things that the court has been uh, most engaged in. Uh, our focus is really looking at how do we avoid them ever having to come in to the court system and in into the criminal system. Um, even we don't want them necessarily to come in through the civil commitment system. So there's actually three things in here that really can help us address that. So let's start with the SIM mapping, sequential intercept mapping. What that is, is it's, it's a system where you bring in folks from around your community. It is community by community. And you bring folks in um, from a lot of different disciplines and you talk to them about what are the resources that are available in your community. And you literally map them. Um, and you have an identified place to go when you need food, when you need housing, when you need uh, treatment, so that you can push that out to people like police officers. When they confront someone who is in a crisis, where do they take them? And this mapping is provided to them so they have options. You have to know what's out there. Uh, judges, the same thing. If someone comes in front of a judge, they need to know what resources are available. So the SIM mapping starts that. The idea is where are those intercepts? prior to them ever coming into the court system that they can get help. So that's part of it. Another part of it is if they do hit the court system, let's say they hit the court system on the criminal side. One of the top nine recommendations here is let's look at pre-trial opportunities to get folks into treatment. When people are in treatment and when people have resources prior to going to trial, you find better outcomes. Fewer people end up in jail. Fewer people end up um, in prison. They actually are just getting the things, the services they need to keep them out of that system. And so that's another thing that's in here. What, how can we get services pre-trial? And then finally, you've got the civil commitment rewrite. When someone is in crisis and they are a danger to themselves or a danger um, to others, there has to be an intervention. And right now, the way that our system works, sometimes it takes longer than it should Sometimes some of the evaluations that need to happen aren't happening in a timely manner because of lack of, or lack of providers. So that's another one of the things that we wanna work on here is how do we revamp that system to be a good system and to get people the treatment they need, um, <clears throat> but do it in a way that is effective, that is efficient, um, and people aren't sitting in jail waiting or sitting in a hospital room uh, for days waiting for these evaluations. 
So there's a lot of things going on. And the idea truly is how do we do this better? And how do we do it before someone ends up in the system? I know in the working groups, they did talk quite a bit about uh, drug courts and mental health courts. Can you walk me through a little bit? How does that work? I think, you know, the average listener may not know unless they've committed a crime. Um, I love to talk about our treatment courts. So there's a few different types of treatment courts. Two of the ones, uh, two of them you've mentioned. You've got the mental health courts and drug courts. So the idea is there are people who are in the system who have substance use disorders or mental illness or both. Um, and sort of historically, the way that that was dealt with is like any other case that we're just going to treat this person as if they didn't have one of these difficulties in their life. Um, but starting in the late 90s, this idea of treatment courts came up. It's been called a lot of different things, problem-solving courts, specialty courts, um, but really the idea is to get people treatment. So someone is, is um, charged with a crime, oftentimes it's a felony, but it may not be, and they need help, they need services. So they will go in, work through their court case, and they can apply to be in one of these treatment courts. If they're in a treatment court, um, it's not like being on regular probation. They're assigned a coordinator who helps them find any of the resources that they might need to be to stabilize their life. Um, there is a lot of accountability. They're required to drug test um, almost in the beginning, quite frankly, a couple times a week. Um, they are required to make sure that they are meeting all of their obligations as far as if they're in mental health court, they need to get their treatment. They need to make sure they're taking their medication. Um, and there are levels, there are phases in these courts in which people sort of earn more and more freedom by showing that they're following the process that they need to follow, including things like they have to get jobs, they have to be responsible with their lives. And as that builds, what they're really doing is building a strength and the opportunity to live a full, healthy life. Now, at the end, if they graduate from these courts, if they do all the things that are required of them and they graduate, they can actually get um, the felony removed from their record or the, the uh, misdemeanor removed from their record. So they don't carry that with them as they move forward in life. Um, one of my favorite stories is told by the chief justice. He had someone in his mental health court. She had had a breakdown. Um, and quite frankly, she'd stole well over $10,000 from an employer. She went through mental health court um, and in order to graduate, she had to pay that back. She paid her restitution. She made the employer whole. Um, and paid them back, but she didn't just do that. She graduated. Um, she became a counselor and she started working with folks in, in, uh, that were going through the court that she had went through. And so there are some fantastic success stories that if people have the resources and the courts can be a part of that, that they can really become very successful in their lives. We're all in on this because it works and we see it work for people. Um, and it's very fulfilling to see people come through the system and on the other side, come out uh, better for it. What does the courts need to have more stories like that? What does, what does your office need to uh, expand these programs or find similar programs? You know what, that's a great question. With Medicaid expansion came the opportunity to put more folks into these programs. We ha simply have more funding available to us. But it's not just about the funding for treatment. Um, one of the interesting things about these courts is they happen early in the morning and late in the evening because we expect people to work during the day, right? The counties are actually responsible for paying for that. The counties will fund 
um, an open courthouse, the counties will fund our coordinators. So I mentioned that there are coordinators, right? Um, these people not only help them get services, but they host weekly meetings where they bring in the prosecutor, the treatment provider, the defense attorney, and they talk about how is this person doing, um, what's going on with them. We can't really expand the courts without the counties being willing to add uh, that resource of more coordinators um, being willing to pay for the, the um, courthouses to be open more. It's not just a state program. The counties are all in and they are very helpful, but the reality is the counties can't always afford to add more coordinators. Uh, and so that really is sort of what we're looking at right now. We have the treatment funding we think we need. We're doing well that way, but we can't actually add more folks um, until we address having been more coordinators um, and really being able to work with the counties and find ways to make it possible in every county in Idaho. Thank you. I want to transition a little bit. Director Jepson, uh, many of the recommendations revolve around youth mental illness and uh, finding solutions and providers. Can you walk me through what are uh, some of the needs in Idaho for assisting youth with maybe serious mental illness or addiction? Uh, what, what are some of your goals? Yeah, no, that's uh, really important that, that you saw, and as you mentioned, it was in, in our priorities for the state. Uh, we actually had a specific uh, work group focused on youth uh, for that reason. And some of the needs we see are similar to what we talked about with adults, but in some ways they're even more dramatic, which is uh, access to services is one of the first needs that we see. Just having enough um, uh, behavioral health professionals that actually, and that particularly that specialize in youth and particularly seriously emotionally or disturbed or serious mental illness with youth uh, is really a key thing for us. Uh, and so building out that access to services is, is a key item. Uh, the second is um, with youth, we find that we get better results with youth if we can uh, do treatment that leaves them at home. Uh, there is treatment that takes them out of the home, and sometimes uh, that's an appropriate uh, level of treatment for a youth for a mental health issue or a substance use uh, disorder, a substance abuse issue. Uh, but we actually see far greater success if we can find a way to keep youth at home. Uh, but often, if you're a parent with a child that has a, a serious mental illness or a serious substance abuse problem, that can be really problematic uh, just for the rest of your children in your household or for you and your spouse or you and your partner. Uh, and so I think that what we really want to focus on is not just treatment services uh, for the youth themselves, but what are the support services that that family needs? Uh, you know, what is it that they need in their home to help them as a family understand what they need to do to support their child, uh, the treatment for the child themselves, and then just flat out support services. I'll give you an example. Uh, there's a thing called respite care. If you're a parent that has one of these children, you love them to death and you want the best for them, but you also need a break. Uh, and respite care says, hey, we're going to give you the afternoon off. Somebody else is going to step in and manage the situation with your child and let you go take care of you for a little while. That benefits the child, it benefits the parent uh, and those types of services. So that's just a little example. And we really struggle with those services across the state Not that we struggle with, um, uh, that we know we need, that we need them. And the ones that exist are well done. It's just enough of those to be useful across the state is, is where we're at. And then the other thing that's in, in those priorities is, is when somebody has a crisis, how do we actually provide a solution uh, for that family and for that child in that crisis situation? Across the state today, we have seven uh, wonderful crisis centers that have made a meaningful impact in adults' lives uh, as they face crisis situations for behavioral health issues. 
but we do not have a, a crisis centers for youth, for example. Uh, and so one of our priorities is to figure out what that crisis system is uh, for uh, the youth across the state. And, and we wanna to continue to build the one for adults clearly as well, but I think we have, it's time to get something in place for the youth as well. What do you see as, uh, is there any kind of divide in Idaho as far as rural areas versus maybe Ada County, Canyon County areas providing this access to, uh, to mental health care for juveniles? And what, what is the solution to that, I suppose? Um, well, it's, it's definitely the case that we see more services in the urban areas than the rural areas. That's just, that is just a fact. That's the way it is. Having said that, we still see shortages in the urban areas as well. Uh, and so that's, it's not the case that the people in the Treasure Valley are getting access to every service they need and the people in the rural are not. It's actually a problem across the state. But we see it more accentuated in the rural areas. Uh, we do have uh, an existing program. It's called the Youth Empowerment Services Program, or YES for short. Uh, that has been working for some time to build out these services specifically for what is called uh, seriously emotionally disturbed children. Um, and we're seeing that start to go. We're starting to see some of those services get developed and be put together. We're hoping that this behavior health plan accelerates that and puts an even broader, even broader set of children that are eligible. But I will be, you know, our struggle does remain in the rural areas to make sure that those services are available. Uh, I was out uh, in a rural community of our state uh, pre-COVID when I used to travel around the state and uh, was talking with some of the children behavioral health providers, and it was it was um, it was pretty acute uh, in terms of the lack of, of services that were in this particular community that I was. And I won't name them by name, but uh, it was one of our rural communities in the state. And then I'll just add that I think um, we're going to continue to look to telehealth uh, to help us with that. Uh, throughout the pandemic, we've seen telehealth be highly effective uh, and actually seen it start to produce service access that we didn't have before. Uh, and so we really want to continue that, particularly for the rural areas. Um, so one of the exciting things that I found with the Behavioral Health Council is the work that was done in mapping where services are in Idaho. Um, so if you actually go to the Idaho Behavioral Health Council website, all you got to do is Google it. <clears throat> it is hosted by the Department of Health and Welfare. And there is a link to a location map, and it is an interactive map. You can look at what exactly is mapped on there. You can filter it and say, where are the psychiatric hospitals in Idaho? Where are the treatment courts in Idaho? And it, there is a map that will show you exactly where things are. So if people are interested in where are the services in Idaho, where are the places where there aren't as strong or robust services, there's a place for them to go and they can look at it and um, identify for themselves you know, what's in my area. And we hope to absolutely fill that out. That's part of the SIM mapping is we really want to have um, an even more robust map with even more information on it in the future. Okay. Some of the other recommendations revolve around the stigma of mental illness or individuals suffering from substance abuse disorders. Uh, what are, and this is a question for either of you, what do you think some of the steps are to remedy that, or I guess uh, reduce some of the stigma around getting getting help? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, and I actually think in general, we've made good progress on that as a state and as a society in the US over the last 10 years in particular. Um, you know, I think it's very uh, common now for people to understand that we don't wanna criminalize behavioral health issues. 
um, and uh, that we really want to um, we want to focus on the fact that that's a treatable disease. Um, that's 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 it's just like any other disease that uh, somebody can incur, uh, and so that's no different than you know getting asthma or, or some other thing. Uh, and the other thing is that it is treatable, and so I think those messages have started to permeate. Um, um, uh, through society over the last uh, 10 years or so in particular. And while you know, 40 years ago, we really tried to deinstitutionalize. So it used to be if you had a severe mental illness, we'd sort of send you to an institution and hope we didn't see you again, really. Uh, and that was an awful treatment model. At the time, it was well-intentioned. I'm not trying to knock the decisions that were made then, but just know a lot more now. We know that those diseases are fully treatable and, and they're made way more prevalent than, uh, than, than uh, I think people realize. Uh, I, I would, all of us know somebody in our lives that we care about and love that's had some brush with mental health or substance use disorder. Um, and that's, I think, part of the part of what's moving it forward. So we've made progress. I think as we look forward, we'd like to continue that progress. Uh, we're hoping that we have partners that come forward and do everything from public uh, awareness campaigns to, to help destigmatize that. Uh, I've, I've seen some campaigns around mental health awareness with uh, bracelets, et cetera, that have been taken place across the state. We hope to see that continue to move forward. Um, and uh, frankly, as we continue to implement these programs and services, um, and as we see more um, uh, behavioral issues that arise in the state, I think that also helps to destigmatize uh, um, those things as well. And it's everything from uh, awareness around suicide and suicide prevention to awareness around substance abuse treatments to uh, awareness around behavioral health services that are available. Uh, as I've told all my kids as they were growing up, uh, you know, uh, I think everybody should go to counseling at once in their life. It actually is incredibly helpful. And mm -hmm. I sort of I always joke with them that I have two funds for them. I have the uh, college education fund to get them through school and I have the uh, the behavioral health counseling fund that so they that they can address all the mistakes I made as a parent so they can write that in their life. <laughs> and on. Uh, and it, just even that kind of conversation, I think even with the young people helps normalize that and make it acceptable that it's a, it's okay to acknowledge that, they, that those things and it's okay to get treatment for those things and, and life gets better as a result. So mostly we're hoping to have partners and others just continue to carry that message. I just wanted to add this, you know, I, I was speaking with a, a young woman who um, had a lot of anxiety. She had an anxiety disorder. And when she was diagnosed with it and um, pretty upset about it, right? There's something wrong with me. One of the things that I see is happening is that people are starting to understand that a diagnosis, a, a recognition of a substance use disorder, a diagnosis of a mental illness, it's not an end, it's a beginning. It's the opportunity for them to start understanding what's happening with them and start finding ways to productively address it, right? We do that with a lot of different things. So, so this young woman, she, she had an anxiety disorder. She was pretty upset about it. She had to do a presentation for school, right? She had to do, essentially it was high school speech. She had to do a speech and she was very stressed about it um, and kind of threw up her hands and said, I can't do this. Um, so she and I were talking about it and I sat down and I did a Google search and I started pulling up successful people that have an anxiety disorder and how successful they truly are. I mean, these are, these are billionaires, these are people in business, in law, and, and saying, you know what? There's nothing unusual about this. Um, and this is your opportunity to recognize what's happening and to find ways to not only, um, not just deal with it, but quite frankly, use it in a way that helps you strive and helps you thrive in things. And so I think there's just this, 
we sort of started recognizing that people and being open, more open about the fact that people have different disorders and that it is just, a, it, it's something that it's no different from having asthma. It's something that you, you know, it's going on in your body, but we're also starting to recognize it's not the end. It's not, it's not a horrible thing to get a diagnosis. It's an opportunity to figure out ways that you can do better. Um, that you can actually use it in a positive way, um, that there are things that can help you when you need it. We're doing a great job of moving the ball forward. And I think that this Behavioral Health Council is just one more step in that process of let's move it a little bit more forward and let's make sure that people's lives are a little bit, not just recognized, but a little bit better as a result. In reference to the judicial system, I know I've, uh, I've been in courtrooms and heard judges talk to defendants and uh, recognize that if this person was perhaps in a healthier state of mind, the, the incident in question would not have happened. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing a shift in the judicial system as far as judges and prosecutors recognizing this and perhaps being more empathetic towards people's needs? Absolutely, that's happening. I don't know that it's, it's necessarily more empathetic because I don't think that they weren't empathetic before. But I think one of the things that you have to do is you have to have education. You have to understand what, what is the driving cause here? How can this particular mental health issue or how can addiction impact the way that a person behaves? And with education, we do tons of education with judges. And in fact, um, in September, we have all the judges in the state um, spending two days being educated on mental health, right? And that is just a, a consistent ongoing process. Prosecutors also do their um, own education pro- um, programs on it. But if you're not educated, you don't necessarily understand it. Once you understand it, I have no doubt there's tons of empathy there. Um, and quite frankly, sometimes people forget this, but judges are human. Uh, prosecutors are human, right? And I think not only that, but the defense attorneys are starting to recognize those signs too and finding options and opportunities for their clients. So as a system, um, everywhere from the prosecutor who, or the police officer who arrests somebody or confronts somebody in a crisis, um, all the way through to those parole officers or dealing with people who were in the system, there's just a tremendous amount of education, understanding, um, and looking for those resources that people need that aren't necessarily just lock them up and forget that they exist, right? We're trying to get people back into a healthy state of mind and because it improves all of our communities. It's not, it's not just about that individual. Our communities are better when people are healthier and have a, have a better opportunity at life. So you're seeing that across the system. Just building on what Director Omanson said around education, one of the big... Um in my mind, it kind of transitions that opened up this conversation to normalize and destigmatize behavioral health issues is all the conversation really that we've had around trauma over the last 10 years or so. And really that recognition that uh, the impact that trauma has in people's lives, uh, particularly in children's lives, uh, and how that uh, needs to be treated or it can lead to lifelong consequences, including behavioral health issues or substance abuse issues. Uh, so, for example, 10 years ago, nobody knew what an ACE score, Adverse Childhood Experience Score, was. Uh, and now, hopefully, and many more people are aware of what that means. Uh, what it, and what it means is as a child experiences more tra- traumatic events in their life, and there's actually a short list of 10 questions that anyone can Google and find quickly, see what your own ACE score is, um, that that increases the probability that they're going to have behavioral health or substance use disorders. And in fact, we know now that if you have over seven ACEs as a, a, a child, that, that on average, a person who's had over seven ACEs will live 20 years shorter than the average population. Uh, and so 
But what that has opened up is really trauma-informed treatment, the basis of trauma as understanding that as it plays out in behavioral health issues. And those things are overcomable. Um, not, not I don't want to trivialize those. I don't want to diminish any trauma anyone's ever experienced in their life. But we now also know how to treat that through trauma-based methods. And I think that's uh, gone a long ways towards creating resilient kids and adults. And uh, Idaho PBS has been great about uh, putting on a regular, at least annual program around resiliency in Idaho and specifically with children. And I want to commend them for that. Uh, and I think those are the kind of things that really help to destigmatize behavioral health because then you start to understand some of the why. Uh, if this has happened to you in your life, you can understand how uh, that can have an impact on your behavioral health or cause a substance use disorder issue. Uh, and so even just things like uh, Idaho Public Television is doing really, really help uh, destigmatize behavioral health issues. I honestly can't let ACEs go because this is one of the things that as a member of the Behavioral Health Council, I have learned. And that is you, um, you can never just let it go at the adverse childhood experiences. You've got to acknowledge that there are actually things that build resiliency in kids. So just because the child has a, 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 encountered an adverse experience, um, that is, again, not the end of the story, right? Um, so there are positive childhood experiences that we have to match with that. There are positive things that can build that resiliency and help that child. Um, so I have learned as a member of the council, um, with great thanks to some of the folks on the council, that um, anytime you talk about ACEs, you got to acknowledge there are also these other opportunities for positive childhood experiences. Moving forward, the recommendations have been drafted. Are uh, either of you, are you hopeful? Are you concerned? How, how do you see this moving forward? We're pretty committed to action. In fact, the name of the, is the strategic action plan. Um, if you notice, uh, anyone that reads these will see that there are specific recommendations with uh, recommended action items, but they all come with dates and owners. Um, and my experience is, is when you assign an owner and a date, that increases the probability of that actually happening. Uh, I don't think Director Omenson and I signed up here to produce a nice, pretty report. We signed up to have a meaningful change in the system in the next three years. Uh, and to that end, we've actually hired um, the Behavior Health Council has hired uh, Director Omenson has graciously agreed to house the per this person. But we've hired a project manager that will be solely focused on this. Uh, we're putting together the templates for how we expect the teams to organize and, and produce implementation plans. And the Idaho Behavior Health Council will continue to meet probably quarterly with the sole purpose of taking a look at how implementation is going and seeing what uh, how we're progressing, what barriers may have come up, what we can do to problem solve or remove barriers. Uh, because I think both of us are extremely committed to making sure that these things come to fruition, or if they don't, that we understand why and what we can do to make a difference uh, within the state. So, but I would let Director Omenson respond to that as well. I know she's very passionate about this as well. Um, you know, here's the thing, I'm nervous, because I'm hopeful, right? You hear a lot right now about people's disagreements and where people can't come together. That tends to dominate the news. <clears throat> what doesn't dominate the news are things like this, where everyone's coming together, everyone's working together, everybody's trying to improve things. Um, it's such a positive experience to see that. And quite frankly, it's been really healthy for me to see everybody, it doesn't matter where you are in the political spectrum, it doesn't matter whether you're wealthy or um, if you're struggling with funding, it doesn't matter. Everybody agrees we can do better and they're all coming together. So I am absolutely hopeful. I am nervous, which I think is a great thing because that's gonna make me work harder and strive uh, forward. Um, I think everybody right now should see this as a kernel of hope and something that we have planted. 
Um, and everybody gets to be a part of this. So if you look at this and you see a piece of it that you wanna be a part of, you don't have to be a member of the council. You don't have to have been on a working group. If you look at this and you see something that you think you can help with, let us know. We have all sorts of people stepping forward, public entities, private entities, coming forward and saying, we wanna be a part of the solution. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon. I really enjoyed talking to you about this important issue. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you, Ruth. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back here next Wednesday. Follow Idaho Reports on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter for daily updates on what's happening in Idaho. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.